Well, friends, five uh, years ago, the last time that I was on sabbatical, I had an opportunity to travel to a place that I've always wanted to go. And at one time, it was called uh, the city of Constantinople. Uh, today, the name has been changed. It's uh, the name of the city today is Istanbul in uh, modern-day Turkey. And I'm not sure if you, you've looked at your the news this morning, but there was actually, I got a notification uh, during Sunday school that there was a, a, a bomb that went off this morning in uh, Istanbul, in uh, Istikel Street, which is just a block from where we were staying, actually, in, in the city. So we should remember to pray uh, today for, um, for this city and for the people affected. But in, in any case, uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, it is, it's an amazing city to visit. It's, uh, it's a city that is, is rich with history. It was once the eastern hub of the Christian faith. It was the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. But sadly, this great Christian city eventually capitulated to the military advance of Islam. And it came under control of the Ottoman Turks in the year 1453. When the Ottomans captured Constantinople, they instituted Sharia law. And uh, as a result of that, the Christians who were living in that city, many, many Christians living in that city, they were forced to live as second-class citizens. And uh, some of the, the buildings in that city that had been devoted to Christian purposes for centuries were converted into Islamic buildings and Islamic mosques. By far the, the most prominent uh, Christian church that suffered that fate, and at the time it was uh, probably the most prominent church in the entire world, was the, the Hagia Sophia. Uh, it's a Greek, uh, two Greek words, it means holy wisdom, the church of holy wisdom. And uh, uh, that's a picture of it uh, in behind us there, the Hagia Sophia, which was one of the most magnificent uh, church buildings in the world. It was an architectural masterpiece built in the 6th century by the Emperor Justinian. It's far and away one of the most impressive church buildings ever built. Here we are 1,500 years later, and it is still standing in spite of a a number of earthquakes uh, that damaged the building. Well, during the Ottoman takeover, the Hagia Sophia was converted into a mosque. And uh, all of the Christian iconography was either vandalized or plastered over. But in 1935, there was political shifts in in Turkey. And uh, this building was converted into a museum. And it remained a museum until just a couple years ago, 2020, when the Turkish government, which has been moving in an increasingly Islamist uh, direction, recommissioned the building into an active mosque. And uh, thankfully, Leslie and I, we were able to, uh, to visit uh, as tourists before uh, that takeover uh, took place. And we could see, as we walked through the building, some of the original Christian uh, murals, which for centuries had been hidden uh, behind plaster. The Muslims plastered over uh, everything in the building. There are a few buildings in the world today that rival the Hagia Sophia in terms of its majesty. But this morning, as we open God's Word, we are going to learn about a building far more important in the unfolding purpose of God. Description in God's Word of the construction of the temple, the first temple, which took place under the uh, watchful eye of King Solomon. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open it up with me. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings 5, we're going to be covering in our time this morning two chapters of God's Word because of the length of the text in front of us. 
We're not going to read the text all at once. We're going to read it in different sections, and we're going to work our way through these chapters a little bit at a time. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, we are, we are tourists, and uh, we're traveling together to the ancient city of Jerusalem with the author of First Kings as our guide. We're going to stroll the temple grounds, and we are this morning going to admire the greatest building ever constructed, the most important building ever constructed, and if you go to Jerusalem, you can still see to this day the retaining wall of this building from the time of Solomon. It's called today the Wailing the Wailing Wall. And so as we get on our bus, we take our tour of the temple this morning. We're going to admire it from a number of different perspectives. First of all, we're going to consider today the motive of the builder. Secondly, the materials used in its construction. Thirdly, the manpower that was required to complete this project. Fourthly, the measurements of the building itself. And then fifthly and finally, the majesty that it was designed to reflect. And so that's where we're heading this morning as we climb on board our tour bus and as we head back to the ancient city of Jerusalem. Well, before we look at the building itself, before we see the construction crews starting to do their work, let's begin in 1 Kings 5. Verses 1 to 5, a consideration of the motive, the reason why this project was started in the first place. First Kings chapter 5, and I remind you as we read God's word, this is not the word of man, it is the word of God, his inspired and inerrant word. First Kings 5 verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now friends, the origin of this building that we call the temple did not start in the time of David or Solomon. The origins of the temple go all the way back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. This was, in fact, the first temple. On earth, we often refer to Solomon's temple as the first temple. In actual fact, the Garden of Eden was the first temple on earth. It was the first dwelling place of God with man. And we're not used to thinking about the garden as a temple per se. That's exactly what it was. In fact, later on, as we make our way through the, the chapters before us this morning, we are going to see a number of reminders of Eden that the temple was decorated in such a way as to evoke a, a, a memory of, of what was lost in the Garden of Eden when, when our first parents rebelled against God and when they plunged our entire race into ruin. The first few chapters of Genesis, we get a striking picture of what the temple was created to be. It was God's people living in God's place under God's loving authority to the glory of God's own name. If you want to know a, a simple definition of temple, that's it. It's God's people living in God's place under God's loving authority to the glory of God's name. And Eden was a perfect temple. It was perfect because the Lord was there. And Adam and Eve enjoy unhindered fellowship with the Creator. 
They are priests on the earth. They are kings on the earth. They are walking with the Lord. They are talking with the Lord without the encumbrance of sin. And so the Garden of Eden is the prototype of the temple. But as we know from the record of Scripture, mankind committed an act of cosmic treason. And in so doing, our first parents broke covenant with the Lord and they experienced the the first time of exile. Although God established a covenant of grace with Adam and Eve right after they broke the covenant of works, although God provided atonement for their first act of sin through the sacrificing of an animal, there were consequences for covenant breaking. The consequence was expulsion from paradise. And so original sin resulted in exile. This was the first exile. The rest of the biblical narrative is a story of God working in history to end the exile. To end the exile. To bring human beings back into Eden, so to speak, so that once again our fellowship with the Creator will be restored. And so that once again we will be living as God's people in God's place under God's loving authority to the glory of God's holy name. Now in the Old Testament, we read through the Old Testament scriptures, we get many hints, we see many shadows about God's plan of restoration. We see how that restoration would come through one man and his family. And we know what his name is, Abraham. One branch of Abraham's family. And we we trace the unfolding story through Genesis into the book of Exodus. God establishes a nation through that branch of Abraham's family. And he appoints that nation to be a light to all other nations. God promises Abraham they will give the land of Canaan to him and his descendants. And eventually we see how God fulfilled that promise. He delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he leads them through the wilderness for 40 years. He enables them, once they enter Canaan, to subdue all of their enemies. And for centuries, Israel lives in the land of Canaan, a nomadic collection of 12 tribes, 480 years. By the way, that's how uh, you can come up with a date for the Exodus. Right from um, the text before us today, it says that Solomon built the temple 480 years after the deliverance from Egypt. So we can date the the time of the Exodus. For 480 years, Israel worshipped God in a movable tent known as the tabernacle. And God gave his law to Moses and the nation at Mount Sinai. He made it clear to them the tabernacle was a visible token of his presence on this earth. It was a promise of greater fulfillment yet to come. And God instructs his people to worship him in this tent called the tabernacle, but according to Deuteronomy 12, this is uh, the law of God written long before Solomon's time, Deuteronomy 12, God speaks about a coming time when the tabernacle will be replaced by a permanent structure. And no longer will, will the tent move from place to place. Worship in Israel will be centralized. And so we fast forward to the time of King David and We know David sets his eye on Jerusalem. He captures it from the Jebusites. Jerusalem becomes the capital city of Israel, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 12. King David had a vision to honor God, to obey God's law, to centralize worship in Jerusalem, to replace the mobile tabernacle with the permanent temple. And during his reign, David took concrete steps to fulfill that biblical vision. We know that David 
brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. In uh, Chronicles, we're told that David began to collect various materials for the building of the temple. He was already thinking about it. He was already collecting the building materials. And really the key text here is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. It says that when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. God approved of David's plan and vision. Why? Because it was in accordance with his law. It was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Unfortunately, the time for building the temple was not right. Because during the reign of David, the the nation was still engaged in warfare. There was still uh, lingering civil unrest in Israel. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, we learn why David himself was not permitted by God to build the temple. It says there that David was a man of war. And he had committed bloodshed. He had blood on his hands. And so while God approved of David's vision for the temple and for centralized worship in Jerusalem, God had instead chosen David's son Solomon for the task of building the temple. And actually we learn about that also in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says, When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. In the first instance, he's talking there about Solomon. Of course, in the grander scope, he's talking there about the Messiah, about Christ. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And so now we're up to speed. 1 Kings chapter 5, this massive building project that Solomon undertakes, this is one of the greatest aspects of Solomon's legacy as Israel's king. And so 1 Kings 5, it it actually begins with an exchange of letters. Two letters exchanged between Solomon and a neighboring king, King Hiram, who ruled over Tyre and Phoenicia. That, by the way, is the territory north Uh, of Israel. Today we know that territory by the name of Lebanon. This is the territory of Lebanon, north of Israel. During Solomon's times, these two nations enjoyed a close trading relationship, a mutual respect for one another. Sadly, that's not the case today. There's a great deal of tension today between Lebanon and Israel, but not in the time of Solomon. And in 1 Kings 5, we see King Hiram eager to maintain a good relationship with Solomon. <clears throat> and he, he sends congratulations to Solomon on the occasion of his coronation. And it's here in the first letter, in Solomon's reply to Hiram, we learn something about his motivation for building the temple, specifically the words that are written in, in verses 3 to 5. It says there, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Now he quotes the Davidic covenant. As the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. And so we may wonder what 
what exactly was Solomon's motive in, in, in engaging in this massive, expensive building project. But here in the letter to King Hiram, we get a glimpse into Solomon's mind and heart. He was pursuing the glory of God. He wasn't pursuing in this his own glory. He wasn't pursuing his own legacy. He was pursuing the glory of God. And Solomon understood how important the temple was to his father David. He knew God made a covenant with David. He knew, he quotes it, he says, I know that God has chosen me to do this job. And so Solomon wants to be obedient to the Lord, presumably Solomon knows God's law. He remembers the teaching of Deuteronomy 12. He knows that God's intention from the beginning was that worship would be localized and centralized in the land of promise. And so once again, we see see here in chapter 5 evidence of Solomon's great wisdom that he's being guided by a godly motive in the building of the temple. He is seeking first the kingdom of God. He, He is seeking to be obedient to the covenant, and thereby to show his love for the Lord. Friends, in the same way, you and I should serve the Lord with a clean conscience and with pure motives. We, We ought to have a desire to advance the interests of the kingdom of God, not to get caught up in the pursuit of our own kingdom and our own glory. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us building our own little legacy here on earth i said it a couple weeks ago probably for 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 most of us 50 years after we die nobody will visit our tomb we'll be forgotten by everyone but god won't forget it's not about us it's not about our legacy it's about him that's what it's all about it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason Let us follow the lead of King Solomon, seeking first the kingdom of God. And so the opening verses gives us insight into the motives of the king for for building the temple. We move secondly to a consideration of the materials that uh, were used in the construction of the temple. And so let's look back at our Bibles. We'll pick up the reading in verse 6 and go down to verse 12. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Now therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants. I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you sent to me. I'm ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by the sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. You shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram two... 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Although many different materials were used in the building of the temple, one of the main commodities lacking in the land of Israel was the timber needed for the beams. 
the timber needed for the framing. This was rare in Israel, but was plentiful further north in Tyre and Sidon. It could be easily shipped. Both uh, uh, Tyre and Israel, of course, are on the Mediterranean Sea. And so it's easy to cut down timber to to ship it south to uh, the seaport at Joppa. And so this is the, the, the first major trade deal in Solomon's administration. This is an exchange of resources with King Hiram, further reinforcing the wisdom motif that's running through the chapters. Remember in chapter 3, we see Solomon's wisdom in administering public justice. Chapter 4, we see Solomon's wisdom in organizing central government. Chapter 5, this is Solomon's wisdom in international trade. This is the wisdom of a king who is skilled in matters of statecraft, foreign affairs. But this interchange with King Hiram may have further significance as some commentators have suggested. And that is this, that we see here in King Hiram the glory of Gentile nations coming into Jerusalem. That Hiram's involvement in the the project is a foreshadowing of God's redemptive plan, not only to redeem one nation, but to raise up one nation through which all nations would be blessed. Now later on, the prophets foresaw a coming day when all of the nations would stream towards the temple. And I love this text. It's one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. I believe it's also found in, I think it's in Micah. But in Isaiah 2, it says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet understood, you see, that the temple in Jerusalem was not only designed to be a house of prayer for Israel, it was a house of prayer for all nations. By the way, Jesus also understood that when he went into the temple with whips. It wasn't about selling stuff in the temple. It wasn't about selling books in church. It was, about, it was about keeping the Gentiles out. About crowning the Gentiles out when God's whole design for the building of the temple was to bring them in. Isaiah, all the other prophets, you see, they were looking forward to the new covenant. They were looking forward to the era in which we now live. This is the era we now live. The temple has been fulfilled by the church. And what is happening in the new covenant? Are the nations coming to the temple? Yes, they are. The gospel today is going out to the nations. And the nations are streaming to the temple. People from every tongue and tribe and nation are saying, come, let us, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. We're not waiting, friends, for Isaiah 2 to be fulfilled in the future. There are certainly future aspects to fulfillment. We still have war 
in this present age. But this prophecy is already being fulfilled in our own time. A new and a better temple is already being built. How interesting then to see here in 1 Kings the foreshadowing of God's greater plan through this Phoenician king named Hiram. He's the first of many, many Gentiles who will bring their glory to the temple. Verses 6-12 to 12 explain how Solomon sourced the right material for the project, how God's plan to include Gentiles was being foreshadowed in Hiram's participation. Thirdly, we find verses 13-18, to 18, a description of the labor force, the, the sheer manpower needed to complete this mammoth work. Let's continue reading, picking up in verse 13 of chapter 5. 13 to 18, it says, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. The draft numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon, two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work, at the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders, the men of Gebel, did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. We can clearly see from these numbers, from this description here, the building of the temple was not a small project. Uh, this wasn't a build-it-yourself kit. <laughs> this was a massive undertaking. This was a project that required the efforts, literally, of tens of thousands of people. It, it's hard to even imagine it. Now, it's hard especially for us to imagine this in our modern times because in our modern age, we construct these large, complex buildings with cranes, with power tools, with machinery. Uh, you can have a much smaller construction crew in our modern age. But Solomon is building at a time when everything must be done by hand. Everything done by hand. Every log in the temple needed to be hewn by hand. Every plank needed to be planed by hand. Every stone had to be dressed by hand. Every decoration hand-carved. In addition to this, God's law, appropriate reverence for the Lord, requires the temple is constructed on-site without any tools on-site. Can you imagine that? Have you ever built something? <laughs> A shed in your backyard? And how many times you, 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 um, you know you're, you're off by a half inch and you got to get the sawzall or the circular saw and fix your mistake. Not a single tool. Not a single tool. No excessive noise. Everything perfectly fitted before it was brought to Jerusalem. And how did they bring it there? Did they bring it on transport trucks and trains? They transport it from the Mediterranean Sea uh, on carts. I don't know how they even did it with the, with the big stones. This, friends, is a prefabricated building of unparalleled size and significance. Everything must be perfect. Everything must be exact. A few years ago, when, when Leslie and I visited the Hagia Sophia, one of the things our tour guide told us when we, we went in the church, and there, that, the inside of the church is, is magnificent. 
there, there's marble lining the walls and the floor of the church. And this marble, the patterns of it, it's been cut and then put side by side so that the patterns form a mirror image of one another. And you say, the tour guide said, you know how they did this? He said, I had no idea. They said that they couldn't use a saw because if they used a saw, the width of the saw would interrupt the perfection of the pattern. And so to get the perfect pattern, two men would stand there from day to night for months on end with a strand of silk and would cut the marble with silk. Can you imagine that? Months and months and months of eight-hour, ten-hour shifts with a piece of silk slicing marble slabs. That, that is the kind of thing we're talking about here. This is the labor force, the dedication required in ancient times. Almost unimaginable for us living today. Almost unimaginable. The, this was a remarkable undertaking. In order to keep the project moving forward on schedule, Solomon has to use his royal powers of conscription. And uh, he places Adniram over the crews of Hebrew laborers. Engineers are appointed to oversee the work. Thousands of men taken away from their farms and their families for months of the year. Can you imagine the sacrifice? This is an agricultural society. They still need to plant their crops. They still need to harvest their crops. Plus now they need to, to spend three months of the year in conscripted labor. And so it wasn't just Solomon. Tens of thousands of Israelites invest their blood, sweat, and tears to build the temple. A cooperative effort on the part of the whole nation. A labor of love for the God who redeemed them. When it came to the building of Solomon's temple, it took thousands of people to get the job done. And the same thing is true, brothers and sisters, when it comes to the temple that our God is building today. Do you know that the temple that God is building today has been under construction since the day of Pentecost. And in this new and this true temple called the Christian church, each member has a role to play. Each person has a job to do. We read this earlier in 1 Corinthians. Do you know this? That if you're a Christian, God has given you, He has given each one of us a spiritual gift. For what reason? For the edification Edifice, building, the building up of his body, the church. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We need one another. We can't get the job done by ourselves. Rosedale can't do it alone. We need other local churches in partnership to, to, to get the job done. Now the apostles of Christ, they use their gifts to lay the foundation of the building. We Christians have been building upon the apostolic foundation ever since. One generation builds, and they finish their work, and then the next generation takes their place, picks up the tools, living stones carefully laid into place, and the walls of this temple grow higher and higher and higher. Solomon's temple took seven years to finish pretty quick for a building in the ancient world. I don't know, I think the, the Cathedral of, of Notre Dame, which uh, burned a couple years ago, that, that took, I think, centuries to be complete. Solomon's temple was built in seven years. The church of Jesus Christ is still under construction. 
2,000 years and counting. And this construction project will not be finished in our time, not likely. It won't be finished until the Lord Jesus returns. And whereas Solomon conscripted laborers from the covenant community of Israel, do you know how the New Testament describes Christians? Slaves. Douloi. Slaves of Christ. Bought at the price of his own blood, conscripted into the service of his kingdom. We are Christ's slaves. And ours is a labor of love. And a labor of worship for the one who has rescued us from the darkness of our sin. He's rescued us from Egypt and he has brought us into the kingdom of his only begotten son. Well, chapter 5, we see the motives, we see the materials, the manpower. Chapter 6, we get into the measurements of the temple, the size of the building, the way it was designed and laid out for the worship of God. And so let's continue reading into chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th and 80th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house. It was 10 cubits deep in front of the house. He made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. He made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle was six cubits broad. The third was seven cubits broad. Around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it. He made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high. It was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep my commandments, and walk in them, I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, were not forsake my people Israel. Every house needs an architect. And every architect needs blueprints. In fact, that's what they're hired to do, to make blueprints or plans that are made at the outset of the project. They specify exactly how the building will be constructed and engineered. Now we know this, if you hire an architect to build a house under the, the, the building code, there is a great amount of flexibility when it comes to the design of your house. But in the temple, there were some definite requirements that came from the Lord. Now, as you probably know, the temple was arranged in three main sections. The outer court containing the altar and the laver and then the two inner rooms. There was uh, the first room, which was called the holy place, and that room had the incense altar and the showbread and the lampstand. And then there was the Holy of Holies, 
the most holy place. And inside that room, which was behind a, a veil, there was the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat. And so that was the layout of the tabernacle. And that same structure was maintained in the design of the temple. Now, when you read the measurements here in chapter 6, understand that these are the measurements of the sanctuary. Okay, this is the covered portion of the building. This is the the measurements of the two inner rooms where the priests would minister before God. The holy place where priests would minister every day. And then the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the high priest would only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, where was the bronze altar? Where was the, the laver? Well, these things were located outside of the building. They were in front of the temple proper. They were located in the courtyard of the temple. And so if you were a worshiper in Israel, you would bring your, your sacrifice to the courtyard of the temple. You'd be greeted by the priest. You would offer your sacrifice there before the Lord. Now, in addition to the structure that God had required in the law, we read here about, uh, about a portico, or we would call it a porch today, that was covering the front portion of the temple and then along each side of the temple there were three stories of rooms and uh, we're not told exactly what the rooms were for very likely they were storerooms they may well have been uh, apartments for some of the priests who were doing their duty there was a rotation of of priests and levites who would do their duty at different times of the year The temple sanctuary, the enclosed part of the temple, was rectangular in shape. The dimensions are given in cubits. Uh, If we convert that to um, imperial measurement, it is 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube in dimension. By the way, there's only two cubes in the Bible, perfect cubes. One was in the Holy of Holies, the other one is the the dimensions of the new Jerusalem described in Revelation, the end of Revelation. So the consummated kingdom is actually described in such a way that we are to understand the restored earth as the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Now by modern standards, you you read about those dimensions, 90 feet, 30 feet, 45 feet. What's the big deal? I mean, this is, a, this is a fairly small building by modern standards. By ancient standards, it was impressive. Uh, you know, uh, for a long time in Toronto, you visit Toronto, and you see all the skyscrapers and the skyline of Toronto. Do you know at one time, the, uh, the Royal York Hotel was the most impo- imposing building on the Toronto skyline? Today, it's hidden. It's hidden, but at the time it was one of the largest, most impressive buildings in in the world. So uh, times have changed, but by ancient standards, this was an impressive building, if not for its size, for its majesty. Although the tabernacle, later on the temple, they were constructed to be physical tokens of God's presence among the people, the relatively small dimensions of the building itself remind us of something important. No physical building contains our God. No physical building contains our God. The reformers said that the finite cannot contain the infinite. The finite cannot contain 
the infinite. There is no building on this planet that can do justice to the incomparable majesty and glory of our God. And so later on in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is preaching to the Greek philosophers who love their temples and love the worship of the pantheon of Roman gods, Paul says to him, you know guys, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, although he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. When, when we lived in Montreal, one of my favorite grocery stores was, was just around the corner. It was owned by a Hindu family. And every time I would go in the grocery store, there's a little idol sitting there at the entrance of the store and they would, they would feed the idol. And every time I, I saw it, I thought, how great is our God who has not served with human hands. We don't need to feed our God. He feeds us. We don't feed Him. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a building to live in. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for kings to build temples to the deities they worshipped. Israel understood Yahweh is omnipresent. He is spirit. He is everywhere at once. He is not confined to a building. He is not confined to a piece of real estate in the Middle East. In ancient pagan temples, do you know that the actual layout of the temple is not all that unusual by ancient standards? It was not uncommon, even among the pagans, to have an innermost sanctuary in the temple. But there was a big difference. If you went into a pagan temple, do you know what you'd find in the innermost room? What would be there? Their God would be there. Their idol would be there. Their image that they would bow down and venerate and feed it and whatever. But you go to Israel's temple in the innermost room and what do you find? There's a throne. And what's the question the pagans are asking? Where is your God? (laughs) Where is your God? Why isn't he here? Is he missing? It was an evangelistic opportunity. Our God does not live in this place. He is not confined to the walls of this sanctuary. Indeed, uh, the Ten Commandments forbid us from making an image of God. Do you understand that? We are forbidden by God's moral law from making physical representations of the Lord. The earthly throne of God could be seen in the holy place, represented by the ark and the mercy seat, but there's nothing on it. Nothing on it. How very strange to the ancient mind. It would have set Israel's worship apart. It would have made a dramatic statement to the pagan world. No other pagan God who lives in any physical temple anywhere on the earth can compare with our God. They are not like our God. Ours is the one true triune God who inhabits heaven and earth. And He does as He pleases. And God did not want to be represented by a statue or by a physical image in a temple shrine, but we do read about God's image. Where is God's image on the earth? Genesis. We are the image of God. We are created in God's image. We reflect the likeness of God. 
And although the image of God is distorted, marred by mankind's fall into sin, that image is being restored in us. The covenant people, the Christian people, we Christians are regenerate. We are alive in Christ. We are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God so that Paul says that each one of you individually, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's over 200 temples here today. The Holy Spirit indwells each one of us individually, but not only that, collectively we as the body of Christ are the temple of God. And uh, Andrew has been preaching on this same theme in 1 Peter. We are the living stones being built into the temple. You see, Solomon's temple was important insofar as it went, but ultimately, Solomon's temple was temporary. It was never the end goal. It was a, a marker. It was pointing towards something that better that was on the way. And uh, Hebrews says that the things that are are obsolete. The things that are growing old are ready to pass away. And he wrote that a few years before the temple was destroyed by the Romans. The temple is gone. The old temple. Something better is here. And we don't need another temple in the future. In fact, one day in the consummated kingdom, the whole earth will be the temple. The whole earth is God's sanctuary. The new Jerusalem, described in the book of Revelation, cubic in shape. A reminder for us, our God is not boxed up in a 30 cubic foot room. He inhabits the heavens and the earth. Well, our two and first kings, it helps us see the motive, materials, manpower, and measurements. And we arrive now at the final stop of our tour this morning. We're going to look now at the interior of the building, the way in which this building was decorated and finished to the glory of God. Look with me at verse 14. We're going to complete our reading. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. He built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold. He overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. He drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits. So was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing 
touched the one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone, one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Zeev. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts. And according to all of its specifications, he was seven years in building it. This is a chapter our brother Norm could appreciate as a carpenter and a worker of wood. We know what Norm would have been doing if he lived in ancient Israel. You know, over the course of, uh, of our marriage, Leslie and I have bought and sold a, a few different houses. And if you've ever gone through the process of buying a house, you'll know that you go for an initial tour with the real estate agent. Then you, you typically hire a building inspector to give you some professional feedback. And the inspector gives you a report. He tells you what things need work, whether the house is, uh, has structural integrity. And you know something? In, in the purchases that Leslie and I have made, I've noticed something interesting. When we tour the house that we're looking to buy, what am I looking at? I'm looking at the floor joists. I'm looking at the electrical panel. I'm looking at the foundation wall for cracks. I'm looking at the heating system. I'm looking at the roof. That's what I'm looking for. What's Leslie looking at? She's looking at those things too, but she's, she's looking at the way the house is decorated, the way the rooms are laid out, the uh, potential for how, uh, how we could live in that house. And so, ladies, if, if you've fallen asleep in uh, chapter 5 and the early part of chapter 6, all this talk about beams and foundations and and structure, maybe these final verses will pique your interest. Because these final verses, verses 14 to 37, to me they feel a little bit like going, going for a stroll through Ikea. Something I hate to do. But uh, I do it because I value my marriage. And so men, you want to make an investment in a good and healthy marriage, take your wife to Ikea every, every now and then. But it's kind of like strolling through Ikea. And you look at all the finishes on, on this building and, and we're just uh, observing all of the little details. And what's crystal clear as we read through the final part of the chapter is we look at the interior walls, the floors, the decorations. Solomon did not spare any expense. I'll tell you this, he wasn't shopping at Ikea. <laughs> okay, this wasn't an Ikea finish. This, was, this, this makes Ikea look like child's play. Like, just, just think about how this is described. The entire interior of this building 
lined with cedar paneling. Hand-planed, hand-carved cedar paneling. The, the highest quality wood available. So that no stone in the building was visible to the eye of the observer. We look at Rosedale. You see the cinder box, right? And uh, it tells you something about the budget of the church when it was first constructed as cinder blocks that are visible everywhere. Not in the temple. Every stone was covered with the highest quality of wood. And then the wood was covered and inlaid with gold. (laughs) I mean, you just read it and you can't help but see it. It says gold, 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 inlaid with gold, overlaid with gold, covered with gold. I mean, this is, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars in gold. In addition to the gold itself, the carvings, the decorations put upon the walls are theological in their significance. Do you notice what the carvings are? This is garden imagery. This reminds us of the Garden of Eden. God's first temple, God's first dwelling place with man. Even the cherubim remind us of Eden. Do you remember what God placed outside of the garden? After the first exile, he put a, a guard there, a cherubim to guard, to guard uh, the temple. We read about God's throne room in heaven. Who's there? The cherubim. They are the guardians of God's throne room. What does the interior of the Holy of Holies represent? It's a, it's a token of God's throne room. That's what the mercy seat is, the Ark of the Covenant. It's God's throne You know, we could spend a long time looking at all the fine details outlined in these verses, but more importantly than the details themselves is the impression that you walk away with. You know, and I was thinking about this, this is another text. As you're reading through it in your Bible, you may say, I'm just going to skip over this. About the cubits and all of of this. I'm just going to skip over this. Do you know how many chapters in the Bible are devoted to the temple? It's here in Kings, and it keeps going into the next chapters and it's repeated in chronicles do you think this is important to the lord the the amount of space that is taken up with this description and and what's the point the point is that we come away with an impression this temple is built in such a way that it ought to provoke us to awe that's the point you read it You read about the gold, the cedar, the paneling, the size of it. It provokes you to awe and wonder. It displays the majesty of God. That's what this is about. A few years ago, I I walked into the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, and you look around at that cavernous sanctuary, and you're awestruck by it. It's awe-inspiring. It was obviously designed to make a statement about God. Obviously. It, and in fact, many of the great church buildings, many of the great cathedrals made in the past were designed with that purpose in mind. You walk into one of the great cathedrals, and what's the impression that you get? Awe, reverence, a sense of the holiness of God. I remember walking into St. Giles Cathedral where John Knox used to preach, and it, it's, it just it strikes you with a sense of awe and reverence of who God is. Now, friends, it is true, we often say this, the church is not the building. That's true. Our God is not confined to the four walls of a physical sanctuary. But maybe after all, there is something to buildings. Maybe after all, there is something 
in the way that we think about architecture, the message that we send to the world. Our God is great. Our God is great, and He is greatly to be praised. He is to be worshipped in the splendor of holiness, and as His redeemed people, we should give Him the very best in every possible way. But you know, friends, as beautiful, as awe-inspiring as the temple truly was, as beautiful as the Hagia Sophia is, many of the ancient Christian cathedrals, more beautiful yet is the Bride of Christ. More beautiful is the Bride of Christ, the true temple of God on this earth, the true dwelling place of God among men. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Beautiful. Far more beautiful than any physical building. Far more beautiful than any temple. Far more beautiful than any Gothic cathedral is the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the church for whom He died. It is the people for whom He shed His blood. Let us strive, therefore, brethren, to adorn ourselves in a way that shows forth the greatness and the glory and the majesty of our King. That we would walk in holiness before Him upholding the glorious precepts of His moral law, showing forth in our daily lives the true nature of His kingdom. Let us, as Spirit-indwelled, Spirit-regenerated image-bearers on this earth, manifest the glory of God in the darkness and depravity of our world. Let us live in such a way that the world cannot help but see the greatness of God. They couldn't help but see the splendor of the temple. Let us live as the true temple in such a way the world can't miss it. They can't help but see its, its beauty and its, its majesty which points to the majesty of God. For as Isaiah prophesied long ago and is now being fulfilled in the Christian church, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, O church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord.